This episode of Bag of Bones is supported by Damsel in Defense, equipping women with a plethora of self-defense tools, and also by Lumi Deodorant, doctor-developed, aluminum and baking soda-free, naturally scented, non-staining, and effective. Try Lumi because it's natural, and love it because it works anywhere on your body. This episode also gets a shout-out to a sister podcast in the Ragtag Network, Save Me an Isle Seat. They recently covered the musical version of Bonnie and Clyde in episode 58. So, if you're interested in putting theft, murder, and mayhem and inaccurate history to music, you should definitely check it out. The links to all of these things and more can be found in the show notes. Welcome back to part two of the Bonnie and Clyde episode. In case you missed last week's episode, I'd recommend you go back and listen to that one before starting this one. Everything will make so much more sense. But as for a brief recap, we talked about what makes this couple tick and a bit about their family dynamic. We left off with the surprise ambush that happened in Joplin, Missouri, where the police were surprised, not expecting THE Bonnie and Clyde to be right under their nose, and the Barrel Gang was surprised, not thinking anyone knew where they were, especially since they were behaving. Poor, brand new to the family, Blanche Barrow was surprised and was perhaps wondering what she had gotten herself into. And the world was surprised when they got their first look at the Barrel Gang. Bonnie and Clyde, Buck and Blanche, and W.D. Jones. Well, let's find out as we continue on with our story. I think that brings us to May of 1933. Time is running out. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen, then, to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. Nell Barrow, Clyde's older sister by two years, asked her brother how it felt when he took another man's life, and he said, quote, like I always felt, sick inside, sick and cold and weak, and sort of dull wishing that I had never been born. Sis, it's hard to make you understand because you've never faced it. But it comes so quickly and it happens in an instant. You're there. They're there. They've got guns. You've got guns. You know it's going to be you or them and there's no time to think about anything else. You grit your teeth and you come down on it. In that case, they're telling the story, not you, next day. Then it's over and done and no going back. You've killed a man. You see him lying there if it's daylight and you've got time to wait and look. Life's gone, and you took it. He'll never live and breathe and laugh again. But if he'd beat you to it, you'd be lying there like that. It gets mixed up. It seems senseless, the whole business, them killing you, you killing them. You wonder why you were born. Why anybody was ever born. Why God should bother with the whole mess. And you feel so helpless, unable to do anything about it. And then... You run away and get sick, and that's all. End quote. They were living legends. 
The good news, they were famous and the world would know their name forever. The bad news, they were famous and every lawman across the country now knew their name and what they looked like. From this point on, they were never at rest. They barely had luxury to sleep in a bed, having to eat whatever they could grab it to go. They'd have to bathe in the ice-cold streams and rivers and either take their clothes to be cleaned and swing around later to pick them up, if it was safe, or buy new ones. They constantly had to look over their shoulder and were never again really at peace. W.D. Jones would recall how they would keep up with the pulse of the law, quote, We'd pick up the newspaper in whatever little town we was traveling through and Bonnie would read it aloud. That way we kept up with where the law thought we was and we'd head in the opposite direction, end quote. They would send us many letters, Nell would write later. They were never signed or dated and were always mailed from a different town because they were afraid our mail was being watched. They said very little in the letters, only that they were alive and well and we were not to worry. Not to worry? We never knew an hour free from worry. The newspapers were like death sentences each day till we read and found them to have no news of Clyde and Bonnie. We lived in constant and hourly dread of disaster. Our sleep was troubled with nightmares of their death under some revolting circumstance, and my mother aged before my eyes. It was impossible not to worry, end quote. And yet the banditry life wasn't as glamorous as the papers made out. The tribe of five would keep moving, looking for the next small town with small town gas station or small town business, but he liked to keep it small. W.D. would say, quote, some of the tales about us robbing banks all the time ain't true either. The time I was with Clyde and Bonnie, we never made a bank job. He liked grocery stores, filling stations, and places where there was a bankroll. Why should we rob a bank? There was never much money in the banks back then in them days in the Southwest, but that's not the way the papers put it. They'd write we was heist in a bank in Texas when we was actually off in Tennessee or somewhere else, end quote. They would sleep in the car most of the time, or on occasion, if they could find some side road hidden by brush, they would pull over and try and stretch out or cook a meal, or if there was a stream nearby, they would wash the dust off themselves. Someone would always have to keep watch. They had a collection of license plates from a variety of states that could change the look of the vehicle in minutes. Plus, Clyde never really liked keeping any vehicle for too long. They were constantly changing rides every other week or so, depending on how hard he was on each one. Clean and pressed clothes were very important to them. Clyde always wanted his suits clean and pressed. They would leave their clothes in small-town laundry and circle back in a few days to retrieve them, hoping they hadn't been recognized and a coup hadn't been set up for their return. If they couldn't get back to grab their laundry, they would abandon it and buy new clothes along the way. W.D. would remember that they would go into the stores one at a time while the other two would wait in the car for them to return. Clyde was very particular about his hands as well. He hated getting them dirty. As much as he cleaned his guns, you'd think he'd have that telltale black around the beds of his nails, but he was meticulous about that, and both he and Bonnie would try to sneak away for regular manicures. At his funeral, the embalmer would mention how clean and manicured his hands were and gave Bonnie all the credit. It was probably the other way around, but they both had similar feelings on the subject. W.D. would remember, quote, Bonnie was always neat, even on the road. She kept on makeup and had her hair combed all the time. She wore long dresses and high heels and them little tams on her head. She was a tiny little thing, 
I reckon she never weighed more than a hundred pounds, even after a big meal. But them big meals was usually bologna and cheese sandwiches and buttermilk on the side of the road. Run, run, run. At times, that seemed all we did. End quote. After the Joplin incident, Clyde was pretty shaken up about Bonnie's safety. He figured that it was still early enough in the game that she should escape if she should so choose. Clyde tried to get Bonnie to go home to her mother. He would tell her, quote, They're not after you, they're after me, and they're after me to kill me. But she wouldn't go. She was in it now, completely. She wouldn't leave his side. Her mother would remember a conversation she had with her precious middle child, quote, she told me, I never dreamed what I was getting into, Mama. Long before I was ready to come back home, the way was blocked, and my name was chalked up with Clyde's. It was fixed for us both. It was fixed for us both the way we'd have to go if we were to live and stay together. And death always seemed the end of the road. I didn't realize, Mama. I didn't realize. I don't think in her heart, Emma continued, that Bonnie would have ever come home to stay even if Clyde hadn't become a murderer. She loved him so madly, so insanely, and so without rhyme or reason that she would have stayed with him anyway, no matter what came. End quote. Clyde was never in it for the big win. He just wanted enough to survive. Every once in a while when they'd make a big score, they would send money, clothes, or gifts for their families. If they could blend in at a large city every once in a while, they could even eat at a restaurant or catch a movie. But, as I mentioned, most days living on the run meant sleeping curled up in the car with, if they were lucky, a pillow or a blanket, eating cold food from a can or stealing cold cuts from the grocery store, and taking care of your own wounds. When W.D. got shot in the head or the tips of his fingers blown off, they were able to go into town and grab some medicine. But for Clyde's bullet wound in the chest from Joplin, it was Bonnie who had to stick her fingers in the entry wound and pull the bullet out. And then there was one night in June when Clyde's fast driving did not save the day, but almost cost them their life. He was speeding, per usual, but didn't see a curve or a dead-end sign or something and ended up flipping the car. On this particular night, Buck and Blanche were in Missouri visiting her family so it was just W.D., Clyde, and Bonnie. The boys were able to escape the car before it caught on fire, but Bonnie was trapped inside. The whole side of her leg was burned from her hip to her knee. She had burns on her arm and some on her face. W.D. would say, quote, She'd been burned so bad none of us thought she was going to live. The hide on her right leg was gone from her hip down to her ankle. I could see bone at places, end quote. They were able to escape the accident by stealing the car of the police officers who came to help out after the nearby farm called them, seeing the whole thing. They actually had to kidnap the officers to go with them, and by the time they let them out on the side of the road, Clyde was so thankful in the kind and gentle way they handled Bonnie. She was sprawled out across their laps in the back seat. Clyde had to nurse Bonnie back to health, for the most part, by himself. He was so frantic about her and he wasn't thinking about their safety, he threw caution to the wind and rented a cabin and even called for a doctor. A dangerous rarity. Her sister, Billie Jean, came to help for a week, but they had to send her away before anyone caught on. And Bonnie had to go through this healing with little to no medication. I have heard that healing from a burn wound is the most painful, so I can't even imagine her suffering. She had to be lifted to use the restroom, she had to be carried in and out of the car. At any moment, at any time, the skin shifted, 
the pain would be excruciating. She had to ride in the car from one spot to another, no padding, sometimes with no bandages, no medicine, and nothing to ease her pain. W.D. Jones recalls, quote, I reckon most folks find it hard to believe we never went to no doctor, but that's a fact. We stole a few doctor's bags out of cars and used that medicine, and we bought alcohol and salves from drugstores, but we couldn't risk going to a doctor and getting turned in, end quote. It took weeks before Bonnie could get out of the car without being lifted. Because the leg was not bandaged or stretched properly, the ligament tightened up and would never straighten back out completely, causing her to walk with a limp. By July, Buck and Blanche were back with the group. Blanche is the only one who is still unidentified, as she did not participate in the photo shoot. But both she and Bonnie had short blonde hair and small trim build. And she could be easily mistaken for Bonnie under just the right circumstances, which is exactly what happened. They had to stop. Bonnie needed fresh bandages and medicine, and the group was tired, cramped, and hungry. They pulled into what is known as a tourist camp, an early version of the motel, but with individual cabins instead of being all connected together. It was a small place just outside of Platte City, Missouri, where they had Blanche reserve a double cabin. She ordered five dinners and five beers and then came home. Using their one-at-a-time rule, Clyde went out next into town to do a quick drugstore run, grab the latest newspaper, and then get back home to Bonnie. It didn't take long for the small town to realize that they just might have a famous outlaw couple in their midst. Platte City called for reinforcements from nearby Kansas City and prepared for the showdown. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougere with Bag of Bones. Can I just be real a second? I live full-time, on the road, in a camper, and because I choose this life, I do need to take extra care when it comes to my safety. I would hate to have to give up my dreams that I've worked so hard to reach because I didn't take these few extra steps. And thanks to Damsel in Defense, they made it easy for me to take extra precautions for my own personal safety. I started purchasing Damsel in Defense products and I love the way they are made. They're not bulky or hard to use and they really have my safety in mind. They didn't break the bank either. And bonus, they come in all kinds of colors, styles, and even some sparkle. Thanks to them, I am free to roam about this great country and feel safe knowing that I have some sort of safety device within arm's reach or on my person. If you do not have at least one method of self-protection with you or around you, I urge you to check out our exclusive page, www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones and take responsibility for your safety so you can enjoy life. I am proud to have them in the Bag of Bones family and you'll love them too. Check out our exclusive link at www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. That's www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. It's one o'clock in the morning on July 29, 1933. The cabin is completely surrounded. Police cars and officers poised in a semicircle around the front of the cabin. 
The trees are being used as cover for dozens more officers. There is an armored car blocking the garage door, the only means of their escape. Officers banged on the door of the cabin. I guess they were thinking they might come along peacefully, but that's not what happened. Blanche clumsily tries to buy them some time, but the gang is already moving into action. Clyde carried the whimpering Bonnie to the car, and he and W.D. grabbed the weapons. They could see the armored car blocking their escape. Clyde went to work, blasting his automatic machine gun, shattering the garage door and everything beyond it. When the driver for the armored vehicle was shot and slumped over, they realized that they better pull back. Yeah, armor-piercing bullets and all. This is just what the gang needed to be able to make a break for it. W.D. pushed the wide garage doors open and jumped on the running board, holding down fire. Blanche and Buck had not appeared yet, and just when Clyde was going back inside the shattered cabin to look for them, Blanche did appear, half-dragging, half-walking Buck to the garage. He'd been shot twice, once in the head. They managed to get Buck in the back seat with Bonnie, while Blanche sat between. The gunfire lit up the night as the Barrow Gang attempted to make their escape. Glass shattered from the car windows, and Blanche screamed before falling over on her husband's body, blood streaming from her eyes. The car sped down the road, and the officers relaxed a bit, knowing that there was a roadblock waiting for them in Platte City. Clyde, however, did not go to Platte City. He hit the gas as hard as he could to create some distance, then cut the headlights driving down a country lane, losing his tail. They drove silently for a while, as silently as they could with three injured passengers in the back. After about 800 miles, give or take, Clyde pulled it into a cornfield and drove deep into it, allowing the cornstalks to shield them as he passed through. He stopped the car. They had no blankets, so they spread newspaper on the ground and took Buck from the back seat. There, in the glow of the headlights, they saw the bullet wound on Buck's head. It had gone from temple to temple. All they had was hydrogen peroxide, so they poured that on the open wound. W.D. was also bleeding from a bullet wound in his chest. He would tell later that Clyde wrapped a stick in a gauze pad and shoved it into the bullet wound and all the way out the other side just to make sure the bullet wasn't stuck in there. Blanche was holding her face and rocking back and forth next to the still body of her husband. Glass had shattered into her eyes and she could barely see. Her dress was soaked in hers and Buck's blood. Bonnie was not shot, but her leg wounds opened up again and she was in great pain. Later, Blanche's bloody dress, bandages, and the newspaper would all be found in the field and tell the story of what really happened behind the scenes as the newspapers told their own romanticized version. Quote, the car held a horrible cargo of agony and death, and Clyde was frantic about his brother, end quote, Bonnie would later recall. They were still running on fear and adrenaline. They had no food, no water, no medicine. The inside of the car was covered in blood, but they dared not stop. Blanche was screaming that she wanted Buck taken to a hospital and that she didn't care what happened to anyone else. She was in pain herself and wild with grief. Clyde was beyond able to deal with everything happening while being trapped in a car. Around Dexter, Iowa, he managed to pull over into an abandoned amusement park that was close to a river and also surrounded by dense woods and underbrush. Clyde and W.D. made beds for the wounded, but Blanche insisted on sitting beside Buck. The two boys left them there by the river bank to go into town and find some much-needed supplies. W.D. stole a second car and they returned to the hideout. There they were able to be still for three days. Clyde, the leader, had to make a decision. By the third day, it was clear that Buck wasn't going to make it. 
As he sat by Bonnie, he told her, quote, I'm taking Buck home to Mother. He's dying. I promised Mother. We both promised her. For that matter, I promised your mother, too. If either of us died or was seriously sick, the other was to take him home. I'm keeping my word, that's all, end quote. It was early morning. The woods were quiet. Their bellies were full. A fire crackled nearby. They knew what they had to do, but maybe, just for a moment, there could be peace. But that's not to happen for people who bend laws into their own uses. The serene scene was destroyed when Bonnie saw officers creeping toward them. What they didn't know was that a posse was being formed from law enforcement from Dexter and Des Moines, Iowa. Not realizing, once again, that it was THE Bonnie and Clyde, they were just planning to go into the abandoned park and yank out some bootleggers. Not having much to do around Dexter during the summer, a group of about 50 people walked along behind the police force to, quote, watch the show, end quote. Boy, they got more than they bargained for. They heard the police say, come out with your hands up, and then suddenly there was an explosion of firepower. The camp the Barrel Gang set up was directly below the onlookers, and a shower of bullets rained down over them, and they dove into the ditches on either side of the road. Bullets were shattering the trees all around the gang. The popping and the buzzing of shots being fired from all directions caught them off guard. Bonnie and Blanche screamed. Clyde and W.D. grabbed a machine gun each and opened fire. The posse fell back at the sound of the return fire. Clyde yelled for everyone to get in the car, and Bonnie screamed out in pain as she had to put weight on her leg for the first time. Blanche was so worried about getting shoes on Buck's feet that she was oblivious to the danger. She kept telling him to put his shoes on, that there were thorns. He needed his shoes. Bonnie screamed and brought her back to reality. She struggled to get Buck to his feet, dragging him to the car. Bonnie could do nothing to help their progress, but she tried. They were all in, so Clyde jumped into the driver's seat and started the car. Just then, he was struck in the arm with a bullet and accidentally revved the car onto a stump. It wasn't going anywhere. They tried to get it back off the stump, but it wasn't going to happen. Bullets were hitting the car and buzzing by them nonstop. They had to get to the other car. Bonnie tried to help with Buck, but they couldn't keep him on his feet. He was shot in the back and fell, pulling them all to the ground. Clyde and W.D. resumed cover fire, unable to help the others get to the shelter of the second car. Bonnie was hit with buckshot that spattered across her torso. W.D. was scalped with a bullet, luckily only grazing the skin, but the blood poured down his face, making it difficult to see. Clyde's left arm was useless, and he couldn't make it obey. By the time they reached the other car, the police had already rendered it useless. It was covered in bullet holes, the tires were flat, and the gas was spilling from the tank. Buck was shot again. He pleaded to his brother, Take Blanche, I'm done for. Take her, run for it. Clyde decided that he needed to find another car. He told W.D. his plan and to hide in the thickets. Take care of Bonnie, he'll be right back. Buck would call out after him, but Clyde wasn't listening. He would disappear into the thick woods. Buck was begging for Blanche to leave him and go, but she wouldn't. Even as the bullets zipped past them, she settled herself down by a stump and pulled her husband's body to her so that he could rest his head on her lap. She would stroke his hair and speak to him. Bullets struck his body again and again. Finally, she screamed out above the din, Stop! For God's sake, stop! Don't shoot anymore! You've already killed him! End quote. 
The officers took the opportunity, I guess realizing that there was no return fire any longer, and they closed in. Blanche was bawling, hunched over her husband, and they tore her away and seized Buck. He was still alive, but barely. They made him walk the quarter of a mile back to the police cars. Buck and Blanche were now in custody. Buck would pass away six days later, and Blanche would end up having four surgeries to try and save her eyes, but would only regain some sight. W.D. scooped up Bonnie and ran towards the water. They had found a place to hide in the thick underbrush. They opted not to cross the river at this time, assuming that's exactly what the police would expect them to do. When they reached it, they turned instead and found that place to hide. Soon, all was quiet, Bonnie would later recount. We lay very still. The minutes dragged like hours. Every sound was like a footstep. I don't know where Clyde was, how he'd find us, or where we should go. Suddenly the firing broke out again. The air was filled with the noise of it, men shouting and running, pistols popping, and the rattle of machine gun fire. Then it was still again. I knew they got Clyde. My heart turned to ice. Nothing else mattered. My wounds, my leg, death, nothing. They got Clyde. End quote. The two of them lay there silently for a long time, and finally W.D. whispered, they got him this time, Bonnie. Bonnie lay in the woods, bleeding and crying, wishing she had a gun so that she could end her life. It meant nothing without Clyde. Bonnie continues her story. Quote, we lay there for a long time. We heard a rustling in the underbrush and a soft hiss. We lay like dead people. We were so scared. After a long time, a hiss came again, and then crawling on all fours, his arm hanging useless, his clothes soaked with blood, he had four new bullet wounds, Clyde came toward me. I just lay there and looked at him, and all the world became the most beautiful place I had ever known. Quote. They lay there and clung to each other for a long time, not saying a word. She'd say, quote, It was the happiest moment I'd ever known in my life, and nothing else mattered now. We were together again. End quote. He told them he had a car, but there was a trap waiting for him at the bridge. They shot it, and him, full of holes, and he managed to escape, circle back around, and find Bonnie and W.D. They decided to try and use the river for cover. All three were badly wounded, but they couldn't just lay there and wait to be captured, so they began the long, painful crawl to the river. It wasn't long that they were spotted, and gunfire opened up again. Bonnie was shot in the shoulder, and W.D. saved her from drowning as she went under. Quote, I was carrying her on my back, half stumbling, half swimming, when me and her and Clyde got away, W.D. would later recall. He carried her to the bank on the opposite side of the posse. They had no guns of any use at the moment. Clyde had a pistol, but it was waterlogged, so they could only run. They made it safely to a cornfield, where Clyde once again left them to go to the house at the edge of the field to get a car. This time it was a success, and they escaped. They inched their way across the Midwest, waiting for their bodies to heal as best they could on their own. When they finally had to stop for gas, they used sheets found in the car to cover their clothes. W.D. told this, quote, We'd cut holes in them to stick our heads in. Bonnie was laying in the back seat, all covered up. The gas station man looked at us funny, but it was wear sheets or show how bloody and shot up and muddy we was, end quote. W.D. was the least wounded of the three at the time, 
and the charge of driver and planner and probably caretaker fell to him. Eventually, that role was no longer fun for him, so as soon as Clyde was able, he left. Side note, if I'm not mistaken, W.D. would get picked up and sent to prison less than two months after he left them. He went on to talk about his time with the infamous pair at first saying how he was held against his will and how he never participated in any of the wrongdoings. But by the end of his interviews, he was sincere in his admiration for the duo. Not for their crimes, but because of their character. Aside from trying to make himself look innocent, his words were thinly veiled praise and, dare I say, affection. It was the middle of August. Word had gotten back to them by that time that Buck was dead and Blanche was in prison. Bonnie said, quote, We knew our people must be frantic with worry about us, so Clyde and I started to Texas soon after that. We felt that the end of the trail was near, and we wanted to be close to home when death came out to meet us, end quote. On a personal note, I just can't wrap my head around how much physical pain they must be in. Blanche would comment looking back on the events and say, quote, We were all pretty young then, but we knew what we were doing. Clyde never held a gun to my head. I was there because I wanted to be, end quote. But then later, she would also say, quote, People only live happily ever after in fairy tales. Because I loved Marvin Buck Barrow, married him, was loyal and true to him and my marriage vows to the bitter end, I am now serving a 10-year sentence in prison, end quote. On September 7, 1933, Bonnie and Clyde were able to meet up with their families. Bonnie's mother, Emma, tells what she saw. Quote, Bonnie was still unable to walk without help. She was miserably thin and much older. Her leg was drawn up under her. Her body was covered with scars. Clyde also showed signs of what he had undergone, but they tried to make light of their condition, end quote. Bonnie and Clyde were a household name. Residents across the Midwest were riveted to their daily papers to find out what the duo had done. And if they hadn't done anything, the reporters found someone somewhere doing something and happily pinned it on the couple. W.D. would recall, thinking, quote, I always figured some of them reporters was holed up somewhere with some booze during the time they claimed they'd be off with the laws in hot pursuit of the outrageous Barrow gang. They was just writing from their imagination, it seemed to me, end quote. This is when Clyde began donning a blonde wig when they were going to have to drive through big cities. Bonnie would say, quote, He made the cutest girl. Our only trouble was that two blondes caused a commotion in traffic. When we'd stop at a red light, men would start giving us both the glad eye. So finally, Clyde had to have the wig dyed black, end quote. They would spend their time constantly on the run, but not venturing too far from home. By now, it has rolled over to 1934. At this point in their criminal careers, Bonnie and Clyde had made it to the top 10 most wanted. And what Clyde chose to do next would push them to the top of that list. January 16th, Clyde's childhood friend and former gang member, Raymond Hamilton, had decided that he no longer wanted to be in prison. He made arrangements with inmate Jimmy Mullins that when Mullins got out, legally, Hamilton would pay him $1,000 if he would help him get out. Mullins sought out Clyde. They were to hide two guns under a specific bridge near the prison's farm. A paid-off trustee would retrieve them and get them to Raymond. Bonnie and Clyde picked up Mullins and parked their car in a culvert a mile away from the prison. Opposite of what the papers reported, and not belittling the death of two guards, 
otherwise the jailbreak went off without a hitch. There was no machine gun battle, there was no explosions, Bonnie and Clyde were not even on the premises. The break was only meant to be for two prisoners, but five took advantage at the same time. Hamilton told the other three to beat it, but Clyde told them to hang on and he would at least drive them to safety. Three would end up going their own way, but Raymond Hamilton and new guy Henry Methven decided to stay. By the time they had to stop for gas, news of the jailbreak had spread far and wide. The gas station attendant would regale the new, now doubled in size, barrel gang about the hailstorm of bullets fired and how Bonnie and Clyde alone drove boldly up to the prison gates, how the prisoners were forcibly ripped from the battling arms of prison guards holding off dozens of guards with hidden machine guns, and how every road is now blockaded. They'll never escape. The whole desperate bunch will be caught before night, the boy predicted. They thanked him for the update and left all the way to Louisiana to hide out for the next four days. But this was to be the final straw. The warden, Lee Simmons of the Easton State Prison Farm in Waldo, Texas, did not care to be made a fool of and decided to take matters into his own hands. He reached out to Frank Hamer, who was a former Texas Ranger. Hamer was the go-to for catching criminals. He had 53 notches in his belt already, if you know what I mean. Having a couple more especially these two, would be like jewels in the crown. The FBI was brought in and a nationwide man and woman hunt was underway. Hamer was able to use all of the resources offered by the FBI to get more of a bird's eye view of the criminals' activities. They started to recognize patterns and created routes often used by Barrow. He studied their burglaries, the ones they knew of, and started talking to anyone who was willing. He was looking for those few who would be willing to give up information, or, better yet, roll on the barrows. Enough was enough. There would be no arrests. There would be no trial. Only the death of Bonnie and Clyde could bring this story to an end. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougere here with Bag of Bones, and I have to tell you I am so excited to have Lumi Deodorant as part of the Bag of Bones family. I aggressively campaigned to get Lumi on this podcast and my website. That's how much I love their products. They are all natural, and just because they're all natural doesn't mean they have to smell like dirt or baking powder. In fact, they don't even use baking powder. If you're tired of the store-bought brands that aren't doing their job and are ready to try something completely different in an assortment of scents, please give this a try. They have products for men and women, and they go far beyond just underarm deodorant. You have nothing to lose with their money-back guarantee, and when you use our direct link found in the show notes, you'll get free shipping on any order of $25 or more. Click the link in the show notes. Just give Lumi a try. Your friends and family will thank me later. It's April 1934. Bonnie and Clyde were in Texas spending time with their families. A family member would quote, Bonnie and Clyde had their backs to the wall. They could depend on nothing now except their own swiftness, courage, and cunning. They were worn out with the fight. They were outlawed to the world and to society. Every hand was against them, and justly so. There was no earthly help towards which they might turn. End quote. The family tried with no avail to convince them to leave Texas and maybe even the country. But Clyde would say, quote, 
Seeing you folks is all the pleasure Bonnie and I have left in life now. Besides each other, it's all we've got left to live for. Whenever we get so we can't visit our people, we might as well die and be done with it. End quote. We wanted him to live at all costs. On the occasions when we saw him, we did not spend the precious hours which might be the last we ever have with him in denouncing him for his sins, Nell would write. So they did their best to pretend that it was just another picnic in the park or alongside a bridge, or a coveted moments in their homes. When they hid out in Louisiana after the jailbreak, they were in Henry Methvin's neck of the world. By having Henry in the gang, they were introduced to this small rural town, and it gave Bonnie and Clyde an idea. Even though by taking Henry into the Barrel Gang, he would raise their notoriety even higher by accumulating at least five more murders to the Barrel account. I mean, he wasn't in prison on accident. But Bonnie and Clyde believed they found a way for their families to spend some time together, and they told their families their plan. Henry's father had land in Gilsbend, Louisiana, and Clyde was thinking of purchasing a parcel of it to make a place where the families could come and visit and just enjoy time together without secret codes and hidden messages and always being on the run. They trusted the Methvin family. They had been very kind and welcoming to the Barrel Gang when they had to slip off in Louisiana's direction. Henry had been with the gang through a lot, especially in that time frame where they are the most wanted gang in America. What they didn't tell their family is that they already bought an abandoned cabin surrounded by wooded acreage in the small town of Gilsbend. The Barrow and the Parker families listened to their grand and romantic ideas of a parcel of land in the woods with a cabin and plenty of space for everyone, wishing they could come true, but knowing full well that none of them would come to fruition. May 6th, Emma Parker would sit on a blanket with her daughter under the stars and look at her precious girl, knowing in her heart that their time together was running out. Quote, there she sat, so young, so lovely, only 23, with May moonlight sifting through her yellow hair and making shadows on her cheeks. There she sat and talked to me of death as calmly as if she were discussing going to the grocery store. Bonnie looked up at me and smiled. It was a funny smile, as if she were a million years older than I, as if she knew things that I could never learn if I lived for centuries. End quote. It was this night Bonnie gave her mother the poem she'd written, the story of Bonnie and Clyde, sometimes called The Trail's End. She had written it some time ago, and it was a foreshadowing of what was to come. The poem opens with, You've read the story of Jesse James, of how he lived and died. If you're still in need of something to read, here's the story of Bonnie and Clyde. Another stanza reads, The road gets dimmer and dimmer. Sometimes you can hardly see. But it's fight man to man and do all you can, for they know they can never be free. Most of the 16 stanza poem defends their actions. Some of it attempts humor, but in the final stanza, the one probably printed more than the rest, hits you right in the feels. It reads, Someday they'll go down together. They'll bury them side by side. To few it'll be grief, to the law a relief. But it's death for Bonnie and Clyde. Nell would recall of Bonnie as they parted ways, quote, I'll say this for her. Right or wrong, she was the gamest, grittiest little kid that ever walked. She had only one ruling passion in her life now, love for my brother, end quote. 
Clyde would pull Bonnie's mother to the side that last time they spoke and say, quote, I'd give my life if I could bring Bonnie back to you just as I took her from you, young and carefree, without a price on her head, end quote. The family would recall, quote, Clyde and Bonnie talked often of death and how they would meet it when it came. They knew better than anyone that it was inevitable. There was nothing we could do to help them except love them to the last, end quote. This would be the last time they saw their families. Texas Ranger Frank Hamer found a break. Henry Methvin's family desperately wanted their son to be separated from the Barrow Gang. They knew that after the prison break and the additional murders on their son's head, he would be going to the electric chair. To save their son's life, they agreed to help if their son could be spared the death penalty. A deal was struck. A trap was set. May 23rd. Bonnie and Clyde were happily on their way to the Methvin family home. They were supposed to meet them around 9 a.m. They had stopped in town before heading out down the long, winding, graveled road to the secluded property near Gibsland. Bonnie was flipping through a magazine, eating a sandwich. It was early in the morning, and unbeknownst to them, an ambush was waiting just around the next bend. Six highly trained, carefully selected lawmen were at the scene. Sheriff Jordan and Prentice Oakley represented Louisiana. Hinton and Alcorn represented Texas, and they were the only ones who could identify Bonnie and Clyde by sight. Galt and, of course, Hamer, were the ones who were able to sanction the deal for Henry Methvin and were essentially the masterminds of this sting. These lawmen were crouched down, hidden in the brush along the left driver's side of the road. Henry Methvin's father, Ivan, was set up on the other side of the road. His pole truck was staged with a removed tire so it would be inclined to need assistance. Hamer insisted that Ivan Methvin stand beside it to be sure that Clyde would stop. And he did. Side note, while Ivan Methvin was quote-unquote stuck on the side of the road, along comes the school bus. The bus was loaded with children and heading for the school, which was just on the other side of the hill where the staged scene was. The bus driver stopped the bus next to the Methvin truck and asked if he needed help. Bonnie and Clyde are expected any minute. And side note to my side note, the truck, the one that was staged there, Clyde had bought that truck for Mr. Methvin to help with his logging business. Anyway, Ivan nervously told them that he was just getting ready to put on the spare. Better get those kids to school. Clyde slowed the vehicle and asked about the trouble. Methvin claimed that there was a puncture in his tire and he was going to need help putting on the spare. At this moment, Methvin was in the line of fire and the posse held their ground. Clyde moved his vehicle off the main road and was prepared to exit the vehicle when the first two shots were fired by Deputy Prentice Oakley and struck Clyde in the head, killing him instantly. Methvin dove away from his truck. Clyde's body slumped forward, and when his foot slipped off the clutch, causing the vehicle to roll backwards, Bonnie had just a split second to let out a scream. A spray of bullets rained down on the car and silenced her. They were convinced that it was backing away so they could turn around and race off. They had gotten out of tight scrapes before, so this time they were going to make sure that didn't happen. Everyone unloaded. The posse came out of their hiding places, shooting steel-jacketed bullets as they walked. The bullets passed through the doors and sometimes through the victim, hitting them both. The barrage didn't stop until every cartridge was empty. The whole thing was over in moments. 
the car had more than 150 bullet holes. The bodies of Bonnie and Clyde lay lifeless, also ridden with bullet holes. Bonnie's magazine was laying open on her lap, sandwich in her hand, and a loaded pistol under the magazine. Clyde had his hand on the shift and a Browning automatic rifle between his legs. The barrage of firepower forced the bodies to the left, leaving Bonnie leaning on Clyde's shoulder and his face pressed against the door. From Bonnie's poem, quote, They don't think they're too smart or desperate. They know that the law always wins. They've been shot at before, but they do not ignore that death is the wages of sin. End quote. This is usually where most stories describing the life and times of Bonnie and Clyde come to a close, but if you're willing to indulge me, what follows is no less tragic than what you've heard thus far. Perhaps even more so, for those who loved them were still living and their grief had only just begun. What followed was nothing less than a circus. Hello listeners, we're Katie, Amber, Kylie, and Matt. And we are the hosts of Save Me an Isle Seat, a show that talks about musicals in an understandable and relatable way. If you like musicals or theater in general, or if you're interested in them but don't know where to start, we'd love to help introduce you. Come find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or on our website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. And we'll be sure to save you an aisle seat. I remember that I was sewing, Mrs. Parker would recall. In spite of the fact I had told myself over and over again that I was ready to meet their death when it came, I found that I was not. Extra, extra, shouted the Galveston Daily News, Clyde Barrow and Bonnie Parker slain by officers. The newspaper would continue, The couple drove up to their hideout at 9.15 a.m. when they saw the officers. They drew their guns, but before they could shoot, the deputies and former rangers filled them with a burst of gunfire. End quote. The job is done, Hamer is reported to tell the papers. We killed Bonnie and Clyde at 9.15 in the morning. They were at Black Lake, a hideout we'd been watching for weeks. Clyde and Bonnie did not get to fire a shot. Their car was full of guns and ammunition, but they did not get a chance to use them. From the Tampa Tribune, a reprint of the story from Arcadia, Louisiana, said, quote, Clyde Barrow, notorious Texas outlaw and his cigar-smoking gunwoman, were ambushed and shot to death near here today in a sensational encounter with a posse led by a Louisiana sheriff and an old-time Texas ranger. The law-mocking desperado whizzing along a little-used highway ran right into a trap set for him after being lured into the state. Before he or Bonnie could get their guns into action, the officers riddled them with bullets. Barrow's car running wild careened with the road and smashed into an embankment. As the wheels spun, the posse continued to fire until the car was almost shot to pieces. Bonnie Parker died with her head between her knees, still clutching her machine gun. Barrow, whose custom was to shoot at the drop of a hat and escape in a high-powered automobile, was wanted in several states for charges ranging from small thefts to murder. He was accused of killing a dozen or more men, most of them officers. Bonnie Parker, wife of a convict, was charged by officers having had an active part in most of Barrow's recent crimes. She, too, was known as vain and boastful. Several times she was photographed with her belt weighed down with pistols. The Parkers and the Barrows found out about the deaths of their children when reporters called their homes to get a statement. At the scene, 
the officers unloaded the items of the vehicle and splayed them out along the road, while each member of the posse laid claim to which things they were going to take, including the weapons and ammunition, a collection of license plates that Clyde had collected from each state, and Bonnie's bag and contents and more, were laid everywhere. The two bodies lay in the same place as when they breathed their last while officers of the law haggled over the contents. At the actual scene, every single piece of blood-stained shattered glass was picked up and pocketed by onlookers. They scavenged the area looking for spent shells digging them out of trees, the car, and the dirt for their piece of fame. The car was towed into the town of Arcadia and was followed and pawed at by thousands. The bodies of Bonnie and Clyde were still in the vehicle, which is why there are discrepancies as to how the bodies were found. By the time they were removed from the car, Bonnie's body had fallen forward. Thousands of people crushed around the vehicle as it inched its way through the towns trying to get to the funeral home. Of course, the people of Gibsland, who heard the actual gunfire, blocked the street when they saw the tow truck coming. The children ran from the schoolhouse and climbed on the running boards, pulling back the blankets that were used to cover the bodies, riding along until the edge of town. People along the way discovered what was happening and began to flood the scene. They would push and shove their way to get a glimpse and steal a piece of history before someone else forced them aside for their turn. Pieces of Bonnie's hair had been snipped off. Pieces of their clothing were torn and removed. They attempted to move Bonnie's rings from her fingers. One was the wedding band, which she still wore from her husband, Ray Thornton. The contents of Bonnie's purse had been ravished, and there were those trying to get into Clyde's pockets when the undertaker arrived and demanded that people move away. Pictures were snapped. Bodies were rolled around as onlookers grabbed and plundered the gruesome scene. Parts of the car were being disassembled, and it didn't look as anyone was attempting any sort of order. Finally, when someone tried to cut off Clyde Barrow's trigger finger, the law finally stepped in. The bodies were removed from the vehicle and placed on stretchers. The car was again swarmed with souvenir hunters grabbing bits of blood-stained memorabilia. Again, someone tried to cut off a body part from Clyde, this time his ear. People were finally asked to clear the area. It was a spectacle. The bullet-ridden car was put behind a fence so that no one else could damage it. An undertaker was sent to the homes of Barrow and Parker to bring a representative of the family to give positive identification. Bonnie's brother Buster and Clyde's father were assigned the duty, knowing the mothers just wouldn't be able to handle the task at hand and all the unwanted press. In Arcadia, a room was set up in the back of a furniture store in which the two criminals were to be embalmed. Thirteen hours later, after the death of Bonnie and Clyde, they still lay on the undertaker's table, naked and unwashed, dried blood caked on their skin. The small town was teeming with people wanting to get a glimpse of the famous couple, and windows of the furniture shop were broken as people tried to push their way inside. The inventory of the shop was destroyed, and the embalmer was left alone to fend for himself, the police offering no assistance. The big six, of course, were having their moment in the spotlight, posing for pictures as the reporters clamored for all the gory details. Bonnie and Clyde's personal effects were removed and placed into bags with the intent of being returned to the families, but they were stolen. The only thing the parents of the deceased were given were the tattered fragments of clothing wrapped in newspaper that were barely held together for all of the ripping, tearing, cutting that was done at the scene of their deaths. 
The embalmer would write in his notes the difficulty he had with the process because of the number of bullet holes in each of the bodies. On May 24th, the preserved bodies of Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow arrived in Dallas for the funerals, which were to be held in separate locations due to the immense crowds. More than 20,000 people forced their way onto the streets in front of the funeral homes where the bodies lay. Hot dog stands and vendors were set up along the streets. Photographers, news reporters, and cameras were capturing the scene for posterity. The events of the day were broadcast on all the local radio stations. Flower arrangements were sent from everywhere, and a wreath for each was purchased with a combined donation of money from the local newsboys, with a scathing note that read, quote, A parting tribute to a murdering pair whose death sold an estimated 450,000 papers. End quote. News reporters gave the families no rest. A car was sent, and a police escort accompanied the families of the deceased to the funeral home, where they had to fight their way to the door. The newsreels captured the moment on film with the narrator judging the crowd and the Barrow family by saying, quote, Everyone wanted to see how such a bad boy looked in death. In life, his very presence would have struck fear into their hearts, but now they fear him not. Clyde's body is born to the grave. Again, tragedy and shame descend upon the aged father and mother. Like his brother Buck, he died at the hands of the law. No father ever dreams that the little fellow holding his hands will grow up to be a gangster. It is hoped that Clyde's younger brother may yet vindicate the name of Barrow and make it stand for something in the community besides crime and murder. It is to be hoped that he will be able to withstand the temptation of easy money and thievings of the devil and bring some measure of sunshine and happiness to the lives of his aged parents in their declining years. End quote. So, side note, in case you were wondering, the sons of Mr. and Mrs. Henry Barrows did not fare very well. The oldest son, Elvin, was a good and law-abiding citizen. He was married in 1914 and was the father of three daughters. The second oldest brother, Jack, died in prison where he was sentenced to 99 years after a murder in a barroom in 1939. Marvin, which is Buck's real name, and we already know his outcome, then came Clyde, and then the final son, the one mentioned in the newsreel, was Leon, or as some called him, L.C. He was a bad boy in his youth, running around with future Barrow gang member W.D. Jones. He would be the only brother that would eventually go straight, but it was only in the last 13 years of his life. Does that count as a win? They continue the newsreel over at Bonnie's funeral. Quote, Three miles across town where Clyde's body lay, lies the body of Bonnie Parker, and here the crowd is even greater. As far as been recorded, Bonnie Parker was the worst woman bandit since the days of Bell Star. She is the only woman to have been shot down by officers of the law in an attempted capture. End quote. I have so many things to say here, but first of all, if you've listened to episode 19, The Bandit Queen, you already know that Belle Star was not the killer her reputation claimed she was. And, as far as Bonnie is concerned, now you also know the truth behind the life of Bonnie Parker as well. But, just as an extra fact check, W.D. Jones would also say this about her, quote, Bonnie never packed a gun. Maybe she'd help carry what we had in the car into a tourist camp room, but during the five big gun battles I was with them, she never fired a gun but I'll say she was a hell of a loader, end quote. Sorry, I try and keep these personal outbursts to a minimum. 
Emma's last moment alone with her daughter came in a private moment at the funeral home when she saw her daughter laid to rest in her gray coffin, an arrangement of lilies in her hand. She would share that her thoughts were, quote, Your troubles are over now, baby. You died with the man you loved. Thank God it's over at last. Thank God you'll never run and hide and suffer in pain. End quote. Clyde was buried on a Friday afternoon and Bonnie on the Saturday. They were buried about a mile apart from one another, not side by side as they had wished. Each family wanted to choose the placing of their family member in their own way. Clyde was buried in the same plot as his brother Buck in Western Heights Cemetery in Dallas, and they share a headstone. Clyde requested the words, gone but not forgotten, to be etched in, and it was. The Parkers did not appear at the barrel gravestone. Bonnie's coffin was buried at Fish Trap Cemetery and later moved to Dallas Crown Hill Memorial Park when the youngest daughter, Billie Jean, purchased cemetery plots for all her family to be together. Her mother, Emma, was buried there, and when Bonnie's remains were moved, they were placed beside her. Clyde's parents and two sisters were present at the Parker graveside. Our final words for this episode will come from Emma Parker. Quote, They were monsters. They were outlaws. They did unspeakable things, so said the press, so averred the law. The law and the press were undoubtedly right. There was another side to the story, another angle which only we who loved them and suffered untold worry and torment for them could possibly know. The long trail has ended. Bonnie and Clyde had sinned and suffered and paid the price. They had broken the laws of God and man, and death had come out to meet them on a morning in May. Death for Bonnie and Clyde. End quote. Thank you so much for joining me for this week's episode. It's hard to believe the Bag of Bones is almost a year old. That is so exciting to me, and I have you to thank for that, because without you, there would be no Bag of Bones. I'm trying to think of something really special for you guys for our first anniversary, and if you have any suggestions, let me know. I'm always hanging out at the Bag of Bones Facebook or Instagram pages, or you can email me from my website at elizabethbougeret.com. If you haven't yet, please head over to your platform of choice and leave us a five-star review so they'll know you're out there and enjoying the show. Maybe they will invite new listeners too. I'm Elizabeth Bougeret. Thanks for spending another week with me. Until next time then. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.